charm is bleeding me dry. Nickels and dimes are falling from the sky. Greetings and salutations. My name is Tyler Ellenick, and this is Raven Drew, the podcast that chronicles all things 90s can rock. In this episode, I'm joined by Allison Outhit of Halifax, Nova Scotia's Rebecca West. Before we kind of dive deep into um, the 90s in Halifax and your kind of role within that scene, um, I would be remiss not to talk about your time in the UK because you uh, had an interesting job there and you were part of something pretty historic. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I was. So I was um, in, in, you know, my, my, my musical uh, career, such as it was in Halifax, goes back you know, to the, the, when I first moved there, I moved to Halifax in 1981 and started playing in bands kind of right away. And so I I was uh, doing my undergraduate degree at Dell. And when I finished that, I went to London, uh, to the UK, um, because I was pretty convinced that I was going to get signed by 4AD (laughs) 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 and have a, have a career as a, international recording star <laughs> uh, when I got there uh, well first of all one of the fun things was that I, I uh, in order to save money I went to live in a squat in Brixton the south of London which was the thing that everybody did in those days and my bandmates or my I should say my roommates uh, in that squat were all musicians huh. Um, and, um, I'm still friendly with them, you know, 40 years later, but, um, so that was fun. You know, I got there and my, my money, even though I wasn't paying rent, my money ran out pretty quickly. So I had to get a job and I went around to the Brixton job center and I'm probably the first person ever in the history of the Brixton job center to get actually a good job, (laughs) um, because that's an economically pretty, pretty depressed sort of an area. But, um, I answered an ad for an entertainment company that was wanting a receptionist, And it turned out to be Harvey Goldsmith wow. uh, Entertainment, which and Harvey was like probably the biggest concert promoter in the UK. Wow. I don't, I don't to this day really understand why they hired me in particular, other than I guess probably because I speak a couple of extra languages, and that's always helpful for you know in the concert business. And so, uh, you know, within a few weeks of my being there. Uh, he announced um, he did the Bruce Springsteen uh, Born in the USA tour of the UK and also Live Aid, um, which was obviously a huge thing. Mm -hmm. And so when I was not being the receptionist for his office during the day, I did uh, extra hours at night, whether it was ticketing or actually working backstage at the shows or being a production assistant at the shows. So, yeah, so that was my that was my first sort of real job in the music business and it was it was pretty exciting i met a lot of super duper famous people um all, all of whom ignored me <laughs> <laughs> which is of course the right thing to do but um yeah I, when i first got that job i didn't know the extent of it because i didn't know anything about concert promotion or anything like that mm. but i and, and he had these sort of crappy little offices on oxford street at right at bond oxford and bond street and you know they really weren't all that you know fancy or anything like that but there were posters all over the walls you know from like um he had he had some of his earliest concerts were became sort of legendary like the isle of man concerts and he did george harrison's concerts for bangladesh and (laughs) so you know i saw these posters and i was like oh well you know obviously this guy's famous (laughs) and about a week after i'd started the job 
it was his birthday, Harvey's, Harvey's birthday. And uh, he, they rented out a restaurant in wherever, Camden. So I went along with the guy that I was dating to this party because we were invited. And we came through the door and there was like a bit of a line of like a bit of a impromptu receiving line, you know, as people came into mm-hmm. the restaurant to wish him happy birthday. And the person directly ahead of me in the line was the actor John Hurt. Oh, wow. Which was you know oh my god and then as john cleared out of the way i could see the person who was actually greeting harvey right at that moment was david bowie oh no way <laughs> and that's my legs kind of buckled a little bit <laughs> i went like oh what the hell you know so anyway it was a very uh, exciting couple of years for me absolutely and, and what do you kind of remember mm-hmm. about um working on live aid because that's wow yeah so i mean it was a, a pretty pretty incredible feat um just getting that thing up and running i remember a lot of stuff so i worked obviously i worked in the office and in the the weeks months leading up to the actual show a huge part of the work was or that i i sort of was noticing was trying to schedule the the artists and whether they were going to be in the uk side or the philadelphia side hmm. um because they had those two and there was a concord jet <laughs> flying between them so it was this huge thing and you know trying to confirm who was going to be available um a lot of my work was really just kind of fly on the wall stuff like as the receptionist i was you know greeting people and getting them settled in the in the boardroom and bringing mm-hmm. them drinks and all of that kind of stuff but it was you know i mean it was everybody that you can think of came wow. into the office at some point or another geldoff used to come in bob geldoff who mm-hmm. was the you know the the brains behind the thing used to come in. He had these dogs. They were like, I don't know. They were like Shih Tzus or something, but there were like three or four of them. And he was a very grump. He was kind of a grumpy man as was Harvey famously. (laughs) And they would just, and they were exhausted because they were, you know, under a huge amount of stress and trying to get this thing off of the ground. But, but Geldof would come into the office with these like three, four dogs yapping at his heels. (laughs) And the first time that he came in with them, they were really disruptive in the boardroom. And so I could hear Harvey yelling, Allison, <laughs> you know, yeah, get these fucking dogs out of here. Because <laughs> he swore a lot. And so I had to go in and try to get the dogs. And the dogs were bitey. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> that never worked out well. So, yeah, that was fun. Um, and then actually on the day, on the the actual day of the concert, my job was, um, so there was a lot of backstage activity, obviously, and they had worked really hard to book. They actually built a rotating stage. Um, and the fellow who designed that was a guy named Andrew Zweck. I still remember his name. He was so <laughs> impressive. Um, he built this rotating stage, um, and it was split into kind of like thirds and so, and it covered the whole stage area at Wembley wow. so that when the, whatever band was on stage, uh, behind the curtain, one third of it was a stage that was being broken down from the band that just came off. And then the other third of it was stuff that was already set up and getting ready to, so it kind of spun, spun around that way. And it worked beautifully. There were no issues with that thing. Although there were issues on the day of like Mike's not working and things like that. But my job on the day was, uh, I had two jobs. Job one was there was like a, a VIP phone room 
hmm. uh, backstage. So most of the, there were, this was sort of telethon situation, right? So people were calling in right. from all over the world to donate money, but there was like a whole call center for that. And then backstage at, uh, at Wembley, there was like a VIP room where uh, VIP calls were being diverted. And so that was like, you know, phone calls from famous people and whatnot. Yeah. So for part of that, I, and it, it was like, you know, three, four kind of phone lines uh, for each person. And I think there were like two or three of us in there answering those phone, uh, those phone lines. I remember at one point taking a call from the secretary of, I have no idea, but like some Middle Eastern chic person <laughs> <laughs> whose thing was, if you can get Geldof on the phone right now, I will give you $2 million. Wow. So then, it, you know, then it's like, okay, well, just please hold. <laughs> and then I've got to go tearing through Wembley uh, Stadium, which, of course, is enormous. Yes. And, you know, try to find Bob Geldof and bring him into the room and get him on the phone. And then so that happened. That was great. That was part of my job. And then another part of my job was just basically backstage PA kind of stuff, which mm. was about, you know, getting towels or cheeseburgers or or whatever had to you know happen yeah. backstage and I don't have a ton of memories of that because um, you know you're kind of running the whole time the one thing that I do remember was when it was the sort of 10 minute warning for Sade um, mm. and I just happened to be you know sort of in the area of her dressing room when she got the call you know you've got like to be ready backstage because she was up in 10 minutes or whatever it was and I remember there was just all of this hubbub backstage, people coming and going. And then she came out of her dressing room. And I don't know if you can remember what she wore on the day. I certainly could because she was like the most beautiful woman in the world. <laughs> but she And she's very tall and very, um, just a very calm and serene kind of person. Mm -hmm. And then she was wearing this beautiful white outfit with this, it had a, mock turtleneck but it was backless and hmm. big long braid down the back i've got a very clear picture in my mind of her coming out of her dressing room wow. and sailing almost like a swan <laughs> through the room and everybody shut up it was just like this hush descends wow. on the room as they watched her cross through she had that and i'm sure she still does has this like regal kind of presence mm -hmm. yeah my other big story from the day was uh we were allowed to have one break so i got there at about four in the morning. That's wow. when my day started. <laughs> and, you know, work, work, work. And we were all allowed to have a couple of breaks. And so I had scheduled my break so that it co coincided with U2's set because they were nice. the only band that I was really super interested in. So, and we had, there was a couple of extra seats in this sort of VIP area that was directly above the Royal Box. Hmm. So, you know, the Royals, the Royals were there. Wow. Um, you know, which was, you know, Charles and Die and all of that. Yeah. Anyway, so I was watching the set sitting in the box and then and then it was over and then it was like, oh, shit, I have to get backstage like right <laughs> now. So I kind of jumped, I jumped up and uh, turned and squashed someone's foot as I went by. And then I looked and realized, oh, that's Pete Townsend. <laughs> oh, no way. I have squashed his foot. <laughs> and then you're just sort of like, I'm sorry, Mr. Townsend. <laughs> anyway. That's amazing. It's a very exciting day. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Um, how far mm -hmm. after um, that did you return back to Canada? Uh, I came back actually not hugely long after that because I'd gotten pregnant and I <laughs> and I I thought you know I probably shouldn't have a baby in a squat. <laughs> um, 
So I, so I came back to Canada sort of, uh, you know, six months later kind of thing. Mm, wow. Yeah. And uh, was living that, at that point on the South Shore with my folks and my son was born. So when you arrived back to Halifax, I'm assuming, um, had it changed, right. had yeah. it changed a lot from since you had been gone? I mean, what was kind of the music scene like before you left and kind of after you returned? An interesting thing had happened in my absence. And that was, so when I left, um, I had a band at that time called Stagitans, mm. <laughs> Unfor- unforgivably early <laughs> 80s name. And we were like a, we were like a synth pop band. Uh, you know, I'm not saying this to, to pump myself up, but I think we were probably at that time the most popular, like, whatever, underground band. Wow. And when I say underground, I mean that wasn't a cover band right, um, right. playing in bars or whatever. So we were super, super popular. And then when I came back, there was, of course, a whole new crop of artists, including this one band that was super popular called October Game. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was the band that uh, was fronted by Sarah, McC- uh, Sarah, um, Sarah McLaughlin. Wow. So that was a big thing. And she and I never really knew each other. I mean, because, you know, in, in the two years that I had been gone, it was a comparatively short amount of time. But, you know, I had never met her because she was like a kid in high school. Mm. and then. You know, when I came back, I mean, she was young when all of that was going on. But, it, you know, two years when you're 17 makes a huge difference. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there was a, a whole new band in town. And so when you first saw them, I mean, could you tell that she was going to become Sarah McLaughlin? I mean, that everybody knows. I mean, was that obvious early on? I mean, it's hard to say. Yeah. I, I thought it was, you know, she obviously was a very, very good singer. Uh, and one of the difficult things about that question is that, you know, at the time we didn't have proper venues to play in. Mm. I mean, we did from time to time. There was like the earliest iterations of Pub Flamingo, I think was mm. maybe happening then space on Goddard street. And, um, but you know, it was, the sound was terrible <laughs> and, and, you know, nobody really knew what they were doing in terms of, like mixing live sound or having a good sound check or any of those things. So I remember seeing them a couple of times with her and, and, you know, taking note, like she's a great singer, but hard, hard to tell what these songs are really about. Mm. Um, After that band broke up, one of the band members who I know you've talked to Barry Walsh from cool blue halo. Right. Yeah. Great guy. Yeah. He and I ended up starting a band. Well, we played in a couple of bands together, but the first Mm. one immediately after October game was a band called Jeffrey's Wake that was me and Jeff Semple, who'd been in October game. Hmm. Uh, and that was again, sort of keyboard based. And then Barry and I broke away <laughs> and formed a band called flags, flags for everything. And we tried to get serious about that. But this is, you know, pushing the end, end, end of the eighties now. And so had you um, been able to kind of take any of that stuff that you had learned in England? I mean, that's, you know, a well-established decade-old music scene and kind of apply that to Halifax? Because, I mean, um, in Have Not Been the Same, which is a book I quote often on the podcast, uh, Chris Murphy calls you uh, the godmother of the Halifax music scene. I'm not sure if you read that, but so I was wondering if if, if that sure. had something to do with you bringing that experience back and kind of helping to kind of orchestrate probably isn't the right word, but to kind of help build it, I guess, in a way. Well, no, I, you know what? I think it's everything that I did really before I went away to, to England that was, was sort of significant. And mm-hmm. I mean, in the sense that there weren't a ton of, so 
it's a, it's a very isolated kind of scene, you know, Halifax in those days. And, and when I first moved there, there was this tiny little sort of punk new wave kind of crowd and, you know, like two, three bands that were doing stuff. And I started because I'd had a kind of a fake band in France where I was living before I moved to, to Halifax, like a bedroom band and had, I'd been playing music my whole life. Like hmm. I was that dorky kid who showed up at summer camp with a guitar. <laughs> and, um, so I was, you know, that was, that was really my thing. And there, uh, one of the very first bands that I played in, in Halifax was an all girl punk band. And we mostly did covers. And then <laughs> we, we felt ourselves constrained uh, by because I was a guitar player in the band, we felt ourselves const- constrained by the drummer who wasn't very good. <laughs> so we she, she left she left the band and we got a boy <laughs> to play drums instead. Uh, that boy was Mike Belitsky, huh. um, who is uh, known uh, since then as the drummer for the Sadies, and he's wow. still at it and Amazing. is one of the greatest drummers in Canada ever. But um, yeah, it's a small scene. Everybody knew everybody else. Uh, for whatever reason, it was. It was friendlier to uh, women and to girls, I think, than maybe a lot of other places might have been. And and I think that I might have had a hand in that in the sense that I I never um, never thought that I shouldn't do all the things that I was doing. Like, of course, I should play in punk bands. You know, of course, I should, uh, you know, start making my own demos in the studio. Of course, I should do all of those things. And I'm not saying I'm not saying it was a 100 percent positive experience because, of course, there's dickheads wherever you go. Um, But I think that maybe my uh, presence in that scene as a woman who, you know, was not only a, a decent musician, but I also was, you know, smart enough to help people make things happen. So one of the things that I did was there was um, there was this place called the Center for Art Tapes that was like a little artist run media center. And they had a little recording studio. They had a quarter inch eight track Tascam and then this itty bitty recording studio and and an itty bitty room. Uh, So and they taught workshops there. So I I took the workshop and learned how to do it. And then immediately started teaching other people and immediately started bringing bands in to make recordings and stuff in oh, there, wow. which was the only only place that you could do that stuff. And I think, you know, that that might have contributed also to, you know, a way that I connected a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the musicians of Halifax, to their credit then and also to this very day, have, uh, you know, nobody nobody really acted weird if there was a girl in the band. Right. like. You can you can have women in your band. This is a normal <laughs> thing, and you know, if you think about if you think even now about you know bands coming out of Halifax, like having a woman fronted rock band is a way less weird thing coming out of Nova Scotia than it is even for some other parts of the country. And so I think you know it was it was a reasonably comfortable place uh, for me to be because of it. So while we're kind of on the topic of kind of women in rock bands, as um, what was kind of your thoughts and when Jail and kind of Plumtree came along, two great ones? I mean, did you kind of feel a sense of pride knowing that they could come along kind of after the kind of groundwork that you laid? Totally. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, you know, those early days of the 90s were it was very exciting. You know, it was super cool. Like I went off at the end of the 80s. I went off to Montreal actually uh, with the band uh, Flags for Everything. We were in Montreal for a while. Wow. And then I came back to Halifax and like I was gone for two years. And then I came back to Halifax in 91 to go to law school. Wow. And 
you know, within a very kind of a short time of me being there, a couple of bands had gotten started, including Jail. Uh, the first iteration, they were called Tag. Ah, uh, that's right. Yeah. Um, I didn't really know them, but uh, I was working. I had it while I was at law school. I also had radio shows at the community radio station mm. and was a member of the board there. And I remember Chris Murphy coming in with this bunch of gals from NASCA. They were art college students <laughs> to do an interview on somebody's show. It wasn't mine. And I got introduced to them. And that was a couple of members of TAG, soon to become jail. And, you know, totally great. You know, they, they had really just started playing, like literally, literally had picked up their instruments like, you know, a couple of months earlier. Wow. Um, but they were all like naturally talented humans hmm. and really good songwriters. I became really good friends with Alison McLeod, who was the drummer of that band. And um, yeah, and, uh, you know, Plumtree, when they first got started, I remember <laughs> uh, I had this, I had this uh, distortion pedal that I didn't want to use anymore. So I, I don't know, I put up, I advertised it for sale, like however you did those things in the day, like <laughs> right, pre, exactly. pre Craigslist or whatever. I put up a notice somewhere for sale and uh, their dad came over to huh. buy it. I wow. think Carla's, Carla's dad <laughs> came over to buy it for her. And, you know, they were like 15 or whatever. And then, <laughs> you know, they ended up, <laughs> they got going not too long after that. But there were other women who'd been in the scene, like, um, uh, Colleen, who was the b drummer for a band called Jellyfish Babies, mm. you know she 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 had been around. There there had been a few there had been a few women around. Um, yeah, so it was super great, and I was um, always really uh, excited to support you know those kinds of those kinds of bands. Yeah, it's great. Good to see. You have to help me on the pronunciation. Um, Bubai Skull or Bubase Skull? You got it. Bubai Skull. Boob eye skull. Boob eye skull. Boob eye skull. Yeah. Right. Excellent. And the, yeah, in case in case you need to remember the name of the band, Boob Eye Skull, it comes from a tattoo that they saw with the guys. Somebody had a tattoo that was like a skull, um, but instead of an eye, it had a boob coming <laughs> out. So, so it was a boob. It was a boob. Literally a boob. Boob eye skull. Boob eye yeah. skull. Beautiful. Um, so around this time, ninety one, ninety two, you were in Boob Eye Skull. Can you talk a little bit about um, that band? I mean, you were lead guitar and kind of a, not having lead vocals, even though you're a phenomenal singer. So I'm just kind of curious what the kind of uh, career path of that band was, how it kind of got going, and um, what kind of ended when it did. So it was me and three guys. Uh, the three guys were Adam Cavill, Chris Logan, and Tim Stewart. Um, Tim Stewart and I had been buddies since like maybe 1982 or something, oh, wow. we, we met as teenagers, like we were, you know, so I was, he was a, a close friend of mine. Um, and he, and so Chris Logan, uh, who was a frontman of Blue by Skull, he also had a band, oh my gosh, the name of which just jogged through my brain and I've forgotten it. Oh, it's terrible. But he and Adam had played in some bands together, sort of in the mid 80s. And then they also coincidentally had gone to Montreal so I knew them, I would see them from time to time there, and they all lived together in, you know, terrible circumstances, <laughs> <laughs> as, as poor idiots in Montreal. <laughs> and uh, they just happened, they happened to move back to Halifax around the same time that I did. And so they, they started this band and, and asked me to to join, which was really great and kind of a challenge. 
um, in a lot of ways because, uh, you know, it was like a super aggressive, I, you know, the Bubai Skull was never a grunge band. It was really kind of a, I don't know what you'd call it, sort of a swampy punk, blisteringly fast, chaotic piece of business. <laughs> um, but anyway, I was, yeah, so, so, uh, so that was the band and, and I loved that band and we had a good time. <laughs> I loved that I loved that there was a place for me to play some like really, really aggressive music mm. and um and just for fun, I guess, partly to kind of poke fun of that aggressive punk sort of idea whenever we played, the guys would always wear suits, they always mm. wore suits, the three of them they wow. wore suits, and I would always wear a cocktail dress. <laughs> Nice. So we looked re- we looked great at the start of the set, and by the by the end of the set, we would be bleeding <laughs> and disheveled and sweaty, and all of that. But yeah, that was a that band was just a scream to play, and I really really loved it. And is that a band that you took across Canada, kind of touring, or was that just kind of local on the East Coast? No, we we did a couple of we played across Canada a couple of times. And uh, now you got to remember, too, that that band started, I think, in 91, like it started almost as soon as I got back to to Halifax. And I started law school that year. And then I was also raising a kid. So I was busy. You could say that. (laughs) And um, (laughs) I was busy. Um, And the band broke up in 94. So, you know, it was about three years. Like it it basically ran throughout my whole kind of law school time. And then we did a couple of cross Canada tours. We did, we did tours in, um, uh, you know, the Golden Horseshoe, Southern Ontario, a couple Mm. of times and played at like, you know, all the big festivals of the day. Like, um, I can't name any of them now, but (laughs) you know, it was the, it was, (laughs) it was the thing that you did. So we did all of that stuff and, yeah, I mean, somehow, somehow, even though I was the, the single mom at law school, I was also the person who cobbled it together to buy wow. a van. Jeez. Actually, no, I lied. The van, I got the van for Re- Rebecca West. I didn't have it for Fubo Bicycle. We had to borrow vans and stuff for that. But yeah, we had some crazy good times. You know, it's sort of forgotten when people talk about talk about the Halifax scene and, you know, everybody remembers Sloan because of course they're still going and mm-hmm. Eric's trip and jail and all those kinds of bands. But Goodbye Skull was uh, for a time there, the reliable house packer. Wow. Yeah. And, and in fact, the, in, you know, Halifax legend, I guess uh, there was this bar called the double deuce. Right. I'm sure you've heard about mm-hmm. it. That um, was the place that everybody would go to. And, and it was booked by Greg Clark, who was the guy right. who previously had owned and run the Grafton street cafe and the pub Flamingo and backstreet's amusement. So, you know, Greg and I had known each other for 10 years at that point, and, and you know, he knew all the, the guys from, from Dubai, all the guys in the band. You know, we knew him, so he booked us all the time. And it was weird that we would, we had a kind of a weird audience, like, you know, often it was like, like hardcore punk types, but also wizards. <laughs> <laughs> like the... <laughs> I didn't see that coming. <laughs> Yeah, awesome. uh, for some reason attracted the, the the wizards, the metal wizards. You know, they they showed up because it was we were really the heaviest band in town. Even we weren't a metal band, but we were, you know, it was heavy. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, until Eric's trip came along, you know, we were probably the most likely to break your ear eardrums <laughs> for sure. Also, yeah. But um, 
the, there's a, the famous story goes that um, somebody from Sub Pop was interested in what was happening in Halifax. And uh, Peter Rowan, who at that time was managing Eric's trip, he wanted them to play for Sub Pop because they were the Sub Pop person was coming to town. But Eric's trip had only been to Halifax maybe once hmm. at that point, and they couldn't, they, they didn't necessarily draw. So right. he asked us to headline the show. So they, huh. the first time that they that they saw Eric's trip was opening a show for us. Oh, wow. And it's funny because everybody in town ended up getting a record deal <laughs> except us. <laughs> 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 oh, well, what are you going to do? We'll play a little Boo by Skull for, for uh, some people who might not be as familiar. Now, you didn't handle lead vocals on a lot of songs, but there was one song that um, uh, you were luck- uh, gracious enough to send me over was uh, The Hum, which I really dug. Um, yeah. Can you maybe um, introduce that song and any kind of background on it? Oh, gosh. Okay, so Boo by Skull primer is that uh, we didn't make a ton of recordings, Um because we didn't have any resources really, hmm. uh, but uh, we did. We were the first. We, we we recorded like four songs that came out on a seven-inch single, and it was the first release by Cinnamon Toast Records, hmm. which ended up being a kind of significant, kind of cooperative, cooperatively owned record label. And then um, and then on the, I have one song that I wrote and sang on that little EP on that four four song thing, and then. The second recording that we did only ever came out on cassette. Hmm. We didn't have any more money, um, <laughs> and it so so it featured it featured this song called "The Hum," which I wrote uh, one night, I think after a gig, and I came home huh. and my my ears were kind of ringing in the way that your ears do after really? a really really loud gig, and I was sitting in my kitchen just farting around on the guitar, and I rec- I realized that my refrigerator was humming and it was humming in the same key as this humming that was happening in my head. And so, and so I kind of, I kind of wrote the song around the sound of the fridge and then slugged, slugged in some lyrics, which uh, as was often the case with me were lyrics about being overlooked and (laughs) underappreciated. Every other song I wrote was about that. (laughs) (laughs) So that's what it is. Too many tragic images of you like Dead photographs locked in the bank You don't have to carry a weight all the time You don't have to carry a weight all the time Shock of blue kitchen the harm of harm the harm of revelation bright feelings too hard to find you might fall right off the back of the box you might never straighten the tie or the knot you might Straighten the knot or the news, so be quiet, just listen. The home, the home, the home, the revelation. The home, the home, the home, the revelation. The home, the home, the home. 
talked earlier about kind of sub pop coming to town and there's that kind of documentary called hype about seattle music scene and about how that kind of exploded mm-hmm. kind of the locals reaction to that explosion you know a lot of people coming to town now to kind of take advantage of whatever mm-hmm. was in the water um what was kind mm-hmm. of as a veteran of the halifax music scene what was that experience like for you now in, knowing that you know sloan's with geffen and eric's trip and jail and hardship post are now with sub pop and uh, what was the kind of reaction to, mm-hmm. the, to the musical community around that kind of event? It, it's complex, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, I think in part, everyone in the scene was very excited that that was happening. At the same time, you want to kind of play it cool, mm-hmm. which, <laughs> and this is probably why Blue High Skull never got a record deal, is we were way too cool for that shit. <laughs> you know, we were just, we, I think we were kind of assholes about it, probably. <laughs> <laughs> whatever man <laughs> there's probably a fair fair bit of that kind of attitude about the whole thing but um you know it was exciting uh it was also weird uh yeah. because you're like we're just this isolated little outpost on the north atlantic like why are all these people coming here like like how useless are, is where they come from that they've got to come all the way here i remember my friend um I had this really good friend when I lived in Montreal, Marianne, and I moved back to Halifax and was in these bands and stuff. And then Marianne came down for a visit from Montreal. She came down on the train and by sheer coincidence, her seat on the train was next to this guy who was a 
music journalist. In fact, it was Legs McNeil, huh. a very famous uh, um, music journalist from New York, who had decided to come down to, you know, to check out the scene. Huh. I don't know why he took the train, but he did. And she, I remember her telling me that she was like, you know, why, why are you <laughs> taking the train to go to Halifax to see bands? And he's like, this is a documented rock and roll phenomenon, huh. you know, that a scene will, will just, it's like a phenomenon, you know, like who knows, who knows why, you know, San Francisco in 1968 was like the thing. Well, it's, right. there are a number of elements you can look back in retrospect and say, well, it's this, this, and this. And, you know, for all of these reasons, it became that scene about that sound or, you know, why was, why was Chicago the scene for like, you know, house music or, or whatever it was. Right. So why was, why was Halifax the place where a very particular kind of sound came about and, and it was like this kind of critical mass. And I think the isolation of the place is a big part of it. The mm. fact that, you know, to this very day, you can look at tour posters or tour dates from bands and, you know, and they'll say Eastern Canada <laughs> stops at Montreal. <laughs> So, you know, bands didn't come out there, um, but in the early 80s, in, in the scene that sort of I came up in, you know, I remember, I mean, if there's music, there's te if there's teenagers, there's music fans, right? Mm -hmm. So we're like super excited, really into it, music fans. And in order to get the music that we wanted, we had to work really hard for it or make it ourselves. Those were the options, mm -hmm. right? Like I was... I was never going to see Echo and the Bunnymen in Halifax. That was right. never going to happen. You know, so if I wanted to get their new record, like I had to go to some lengths to get it. Like you had to mail order it from like God knows where. Right. Or, you know, hope that you could put a little band together that sounded a bit like them or whatever it was. So that was part of it. I think the size of the scene in that it was quite small um, and people would regularly trade members. That happened all the time. I think that that, creates a certain amount of you know it removes these kind of genre borders that can be really limiting right to a scene developing so you know in addition to the to the bands that that i played in that you know a couple of people might still remember i also played in a reggae band hmm. you know and i also played you know electronic music and i was a solo performer who did like earnest folk songs and hmm. i did all of those things you know, genre agnostically, because I was interested in all that music. And I'm not alone in that. Lots of people did that. Like you could, you could do, you know, one day you're in a, a, a kinks alike thing. And then the next day you're doing some kind of ride girl thing. Uh, there was a lot of trading of styles and not, there wasn't necessarily a lot of attitude about it. Hmm. I think that the musicians union uh, can take some credit or maybe discredit for creating the scene uh, because the Atlantic Federation of Musicians, the, the local branch out there in Halifax, they were just awful. They were hmm. just awful in the sense that, you know, in those days, the only bands that would ever come out to Halifax were mostly cover bands. And they would go and they would play these big, like, university student-infested show bars like the Misty Moon or, you know, whatever. Yeah. And it was bands that, like, you know, the blushing brides or, or whatever, like these like Rolling Stones tribute acts. And that that's who used to come out there. Mm. And they were all union members. And all of those rooms were union signatories. So you could only play in those venues if you were a member of the union. Mm. And but you could never you were never going to get a gig in a place like that if you were 
like some kind of experimental electronic punk band. <laughs> you're right. going to get that gig there. <laughs> so you had to, you, you played wherever you could play, like wherever, like, you know, in a parking garage, like I remember opening a show for DOA in a parking garage, oh, like no you way. just played wherever you could play. Huh. And the musicians, you like whenever things started to get like a little bit legit, the AFM would come and shut it down huh. and they would blacklist you. They blacklisted venues and they blacklisted artists and uh, because of that, it sort of generated this very like, well, fuck you, uh, us against them kind of feel right. in the scene where people really kind of banded together. And you really wanted you wanted to kind of stick it to the man in that way. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if people needed gear, you gave them gear. If they needed a drive, you gave them a drive. Like, that's just how it was. Um, so I think that's why. I think that's why that's how that scene came to be. And uh, I think it's kind of still the case in a lot of ways. Mm. I think it's still a very supportive, experimental. Oh, it helps that the art college was there, too. That's the other missing piece is mm, that right. the Nova Scotia College of Art and Design underwent this really interesting transformation in the 1970s where it stopped being a kind of, you know, let's all paint landscapes <laughs> uh, kind of school to this uh, experimental like famously experimental media school where, you know, they were competing with like Cooper Union in New York where, you know, it was all about people making like experimental audio stuff, performance art, video art, things like that. Hmm. And because of that, plus the fact that the Buddhists might also have something, it really gets complex, but, yeah, <laughs> but, there, but there was, there were all of these, um, really kind of cutting edge artists that would frequently come up to Halifax and do things. And there was this connection between Halifax and New York and the art scene Hmm. that was a little bit unexpected. In fact, you know, if you talk to anybody who was around at the time, like quite famously Sonic Youth came and played a gig in the cafeteria at the art college in like maybe 1986 or so. And, you know, according to, what, according to everybody, there was like 4,000 people there. <laughs> yeah. But really, there weren't. <laughs> I was one of the, you know, maybe 100 that wow. actually were there. That seems like a scene-changing kind of gig, a tone changer there for the for the rock community. Well, it was a tone affirmer. Mm, fair enough, and, yeah. You know, so, so Sonic Youth, they could come and play the cafeteria. They couldn't play one of the bars downtown. They weren't going to get in right. there. Like, there was, no, there was no appetite for that in the actual places where... Hmm like regular audience people would go. There was no appetite for that. And so the scene was really, it was really compressed in a way that was actually pretty productive at the end of the day. And I found that same thing, you know, when I, when I would go on tour to other parts of the country, like to Toronto, for example, Mm. I would find it. I don't know. It was weird. Like people were, they weren't supportive. Like they didn't, Mm. they didn't, the bands didn't, it felt to me like they didn't necessarily take care of each other or look at, in the same way that we did from from out east. Hmm. You'd mentioned earlier that um, you know the Halifax that kind of music scene was really welcoming and really didn't look at genre, at gender when it comes to who was in a band mm-hmm. and who wasn't. Um, what was that experience like um, taking a band outside of Halifax, going west? Did you see a market difference? Yeah, I mean, it, it's cool that um, it's cool that the whole ride girl movement and you know some of the grunge stuff, you know, the indie stuff from the from the '90s, the early '90s in particular. There, a lot of that was really woman forward, mm. 
Um, I do, when I say it was welcoming, I mean comparatively, right? right? right. Like I, I still experienced an awful lot of sexist nonsense hmm. and, you know, occasionally physical abuse wow. from, yeah, I mean, every woman, every woman that you, that you know, that you interview, whether they tell you or not, every single one of us, like it wow. just is a thing, Crazy. you know, we all experienced all of that. Hmm. Sometimes it sort of was you know, veiled in this sort of well-intentioned kind of way, I guess. Like, I remember when, not long after Rebecca West first got started, I think our first shows we played were at one of the early pop explosions and, you know, came came out of the gate swinging and, and developed a pretty good audience right away. And I remember being taken to lunch by a visiting music industry exec and thank goodness I don't remember exactly who it was, so I can't <laughs> name names. Um, but, but but it was somebody from Toronto who was like, oh, you know, who'd caught the set, great set, you know, let's go let's go to lunch the next day. And and the pitch basically was this, Allison, man, your band is great, you're great, great songwriting, great. So here's what I want to do. I want to take you, just you, to mm. Toronto. And like, we'll get you some out, get you some wardrobe, like, you know, uh-huh. maybe some dresses and some, and some stuff. And, you know, you can co-write with the guy from Glass Tiger <laughs> wow. and it'll be great. And I'm like, no, that is the opposite of what I want to do with my career. Like, what on earth are you talking about? I experienced a lot of that. I experienced as in Rebecca West, which was a three piece and I was the guitar player and the songwriter and the lead singer. I mean, it happened more times than I can count that we'd pull up into a venue and, you know, the sound guy or whoever was there would either completely ignore me or make assumptions about who I was and what I was doing there. Like, uh, oh, this area is for the band. Well, I I am in in said band. (laughs) Oh, you you know, where where do you want your bass? Well, I don't play bass. Oh, so you're just a (laughs) singer. No, (laughs) you know, it was just endlessly that, like endlessly. And I know that all the other women in all of the, like, I know that jail, for example, you know, they, it's awesome. They got this deal with sub pop right away. Were they ready for it? I don't know. But, you know, over the years, um, Allison, who was the drummer, told me all kinds of stories about, Hmm. you know, situations that they were put in that were not good situations for them to be in, Hmm. you know, like it was, it was uncomfortable and sometimes dangerous, Wow. you know, nobody looked out for them and, and, Nobody ever thought like, like we were a heavy, Dubai Skull, we were a very heavy band, Mm -hmm. as I say. And uh, I think part of the fun thing about me being the guitar player in that band and also a singer is that women came to our shows. Right. I mean, it was a thing because women like heavy music too, right? Mm -hmm. And I remember one time, you know, it was really packed show, like it might've been a New Year's show or one of those shows where it's just like, it's absolutely packed. And we always had a mosh pit in the front of the stage. And I always hated the mosh pit. Like I fucking hate the mosh pit. I hated it then. And I hate it now <laughs> because that's a space that's always dominated by male right. idiots yeah. who need to go to hell. I hate the mosh pit. And so I remember this one show, you know, I'm, we're, we're middle of a song and I'm looking and there's my friend getting my little woman friend getting crashed into wow. By all these friggin' guys who are like, you know, throwing their arms and legs around, yeah. ho- hoping to hurt somebody. That's yeah. the deal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, seeing my friend get knocked over and the, the bouncer is, you know, uselessly doing nothing about it. And finally, I was like, fuck this. And I, I 
just jumped into the crowd with my guitar wow. and bashed him over, bashed this guy <laughs> over the head. And That's awesome. Like, Fuck off, you know? It's just, which is not, you know, you shouldn't be in that. You shouldn't be in that place. I think that episodes like that, for whatever reason, they they maybe gave me a reputation as being tougher than I really am. Like mm-hmm. I'm not particularly tough. But I have a very strong sense of justice, right. and I will act on it if I must. <laughs> That's right. And those those were the kinds of situations where it's like, okay, I must, I must act. Like I have to protect my sisters who are out there getting bashed. But yeah, I mean, you know, I think that there was an explosion probably in the early and mid '90s of bands right across the country um, who were women forward. I know you've talked to some of them, like like uh, Mao, for example, mm-hmm. or and it was great. I think. It was still an awkward space for me a lot of the time because the all-girl band was quite a thing. Like, oh, mm-hmm. let's have an all-girl band. Like, I'm all for bands that have women in them in whatever configuration that takes, right? I'm mm-hmm. all for it. 100% women should play in bands. The all-girl band had that element of kind of like novelty, mm-hmm. which was great for them in many ways because it created some marketing uh, opportunities, I guess, that are good. But also it's, it, it wedges you into a weird corner. Um, like, oh, you're an all-girl band, as if anyone has ever been in an all-male band. Like, it's not a thing. Right, know? right. And so, and so for me, as the lone woman playing with guys, I mean, I played with them because I liked how they played. Right. And being perfectly honest, like the, I'm not trying to be arrogant here, but when I came up as a guitar player, like, there just weren't the... the the talent wasn't there from women. I would have loved to play with women, but they, it just wasn't there. Like they just couldn't play as well as I could. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to be challenged. And so that meant I had to play with guys. So, you know, fine. So I did. Um, I do remember doing an interview with somebody on the road when I was with Rebecca West. And I'm sad to say that it was a, a young woman who did the interview who started out by saying, do you feel that playing with men in your band adds legitimacy to what you're doing as an artist. Huh. And I understand what she was trying to get at, but it was like, oh, this is fucked up. Like, Yeah, like um, I think the term cuddlecore was surrounded around those kind of all-female, you know, the kind of cute... Yeah, thing. and I see, <laughs> you can't see my face right now. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, wow, wow. It's so patronizing. Yeah. It's just so patronizing. It's just brutal. And... You know, let, like, let's not forget that the in rock music, the standard for everything always, you know, the normal, the baseline, this is what's good, is always what are white guys doing? That's mm. always been the baseline. Right. Never mind that rock and roll was invented by a fucking black woman, yeah. you know? So women came along and, you know, your choices are you can either be a dude and like, you know, get your dude on. Um, or, or you can, you can do this all girl or whatever cuddlecore thing. And if you're just, if you don't do, if you don't do that obvious, you know, it's like, it's the classic angel versus whore Hmm. dilemma that women are confronted with in every possible medium. And for me, I wasn't interested in either of those roles. I just wanted to play in a band and be good at that. And there, and for me, there are very few role models for that. I mean, you know, Patty Smith, Chrissy Hind, uh, you know, Throwing Muses. Uh, I remember when PJ Harvey first came out, I was like, friggin' hallelujah, <laughs> hallelujah. You know, here is 
a female person who just fucking rocks all the way. And her, she doesn't dismiss her own femininity. She's a woman through and through. And if you feel like you want to patronize that, you can go to hell. You know, like she just was perfection as far as I was concerned. And speaking of um, role models um, for young women, uh, you yourself, I'm sure, became one, you know, especially fronting a rock band like Rebecca West. That came up a lot. And um, like the fact of my of my sex uh, came up an awful lot, uh, which, you know, is fine as I mean, I'm not. It is what it is. Right, exactly. And so that, that came up a lot. I do, I do regret, and this is an issue that I think feminism deals with an awful lot. I regret that uh, because I was, like I often played what you would call very aggressive rock music and was also female, I think a lot of younger women found that intimidating. Mm. And they would say so to me, even like years later, I, every so often I'll run into somebody who I, you know, maybe met on the road who was like a, you know, somebody in a kettlecore band, or <laughs> you know, and they're, oh my God, like, you know, we were so intimidated by you. Wow. And I was like, well, like, there's no need for that. But you got to understand, Tyler, the socialization of women generally, but in particular in music is, uh, you toe the line right. and the expectation is you are kind and sweet mm. and demure and you don't fucking rock out. And mm. the, the women who rock out, those are women who are dangerous to be around because they are trying to explode these gender norms. Right. And therefore there must be something scary about them. Mm. And unfortunately I think women, we do this to each other all the time. Like, you know, if you think about a woman that you've known who's like very forthright and who isn't who isn't clearly like cowed by men and who isn't afraid to express like anger or express, you know, a, a, a non-traditionally female sentiment hmm. on the stage. I think a lot of people found that intimidating and, and I would hear that a lot and I always found that really kind of heartbreaking. And right. I think that still goes on, you know, hmm. still still goes on. It's bullshit. Absolutely. Um, we've talked a bit about it, but um, kind of here and there. But Rebecca West, um, the the band after Boo by Skull that um, you mm -hmm. fronted, mm -hmm. what was the kind of goal with that band starting out? Um, I started that band when, uh, so Boo by Skull kind of, well, they didn't break up, but they kind of fired me. <laughs> oh, no way. <laughs> yeah, they sort of, they, <laughs> well, I think what happened was that, um, I think it was troublesome to Chris Logan, who was the frontman of that band, that a certain amount of t attention was diverted away from what he wanted to do mm. towards me. Um, and the more the more we kind of progressed as a band, you know, I would have more and more songs that I wanted to do, and they right. didn't really want to do them. Mm. So, uh, and I'm, I mean, I won't blame solely him. Like the other guys in the band, obviously went along with it. Mm -hmm. We had a new we. We had to get a new drummer at some point, and I think I don't know. I think Chris just wanted to go in a Chris and Tim wanted to go in a different direction, and so uh, so they <laughs> shipped me out, <laughs> and which which was you know a lot less dramatic than you think it might have been because I I felt the same. It's like I want to be able to write my own songs right. and and play my own songs, and if I can't do it in this band, then I'll have to start my own band. Mm -hmm. So that's what I did. And the first iteration of the band was me and Lucas Pierce and my brother, Steve, um, who was a bass player who, who he's a couple years younger than me, but he'd been playing in bands forever and ever and ever. 
And so he played the first couple of shows with us. And, but he wasn't exactly right for the band. And, and partly because he sort of came out of, like he was kind of like a funk guy, funk, mm. reggae, dance. That was sort of his space that he liked to be. And it wasn't really mine. Mm. And I'd known Lucas for a long time. And Lucas was just such an epic weirdo. <laughs> uh, and he still is. If you're hearing this, Lucas, you know I say this with like all the love in my heart, like just an epic weirdo. And I really that I liked that energy. And I even even though I really kind of appreciate like three chord punk or whatever, I also was interested in doing something that explored that explored, you know, different time signatures or um, you know, a, a different way of tuning the guitar or that kind of thing. So and we were we, we were an odd little it was an odd three piece because Dale Hussey had come up through the skate punk kind of scene and he was a very straight ahead kind of drummer. I think probably the one thing that we shared was we were all relentless potheads. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, so, so we, we'd get into the jam space and, you know, smoke, uh, smoke a joint and then, you know, just let things kind of experiment. And so in the first record that we made, most of those were songs that I had written before I put the band together. And it's a very, uh, in, in a lot of ways, it's a very straight ahead. Like a lot of the songs are you know, pretty, pretty predictable in terms of structure. You can tell the ones that were written in the studio because they're a little bit different. And that's where, that's where I was starting to, you know, make some space for, make some space for what Lucas was going to do. Cause he never took the straight path. He would always do something that was kind of circuitous. And that was really interesting to me. And then Dale was just such a, he was just a four on the floor kind of drummer. He just kept it just straight ahead and, and tight. So that gave Lucas and I a lot of space to kind of rattle around. So we put out a record called burners on and that, that came out in 95 um, and then uh, a year or so later, we put out an EP called uh, Six More Weeks of Winter. And on that record, it's like it's really obvious where we were going as a band, which was in a much more kind of art rock, experimental kind of direction. And then by the time we wrapped up, it was just starting to get fully fully weird, <laughs> which I really like. I mean, I still I was still writing pop songs, but I was writing pop songs that were either five minutes long and taking some weird paths to get where they were going, or they were a minute and a half long. And just, they had one thing to say, and they said it quickly and, and oddly. And one track that's, um, speaking of that, uh, that second record, um, and talking about the direction you were heading into, was um, kind of the, the single mm -hmm. off at State of Grace, which some people might be more mm -hmm. familiar with than some of the other part of the catalog. But um, that's definitely an interesting choice to be a single. I mean, it's a lot of spoken word kind of... Can you talk about the kind of evolution of a song like that and how, what's it about essentially? I mean, if you, are you writing a, a poetry? Is it a story? What was kind of the idea of making that kind of song and releasing it as a single, even, which is pretty brave? Well, slash stupid, right? <laughs> 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 There's a fine line. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, State of Grace, uh, so that, that whole... EP, if anybody can get their hands on it, uh, it's six tracks, and they are actually, in a subtle way, they're kind of thematically connected. Mm. But it's the story of a disintegrating relationship. And the truth is that I had gotten, I'd been married 
um, and my marriage didn't work out and, and I felt so much guilt and pain. And so, you know, like so many classic, uh, actual classic records, I'm not saying this is a classic, but other people's (laughs) actual classic records, it's the story of a disintegrating relationship Mm. and state of grace, which is the last track on the thing is me trying to make peace with what's happened. And so the vibe of that song is very sad, but also very hopeful. Mm. Um, And it's a song about cutting through all of the noise of your life and your relationships and getting to what's important, which is being okay in yourself kind of thing. So it's, you know, forget about the furniture and forget about what people have to say. It's like what you have to work on when you go through that kind of terrible you know, difficult life stuff is getting to be okay with yourself, like making, making peace with yourself. And that's what that song was about. But yeah, it's a, it's basically a five minute spoken word song, mm-hmm. a piece. <laughs> and I don't, I don't know why it is. It just seemed that like that was the right thing for it to be. There was, when I first wrote it, there was actually a melody, but by the time we got it into the studio, I really liked the idea of doing a spoken word because I wanted it, I wanted to do a song that made it sound like me talking to myself when mm, I do. Interesting. And, and that's what that was.
But that EP is, um, it has, it's got some really fun elements on it. One of them is that we had gone out, there was this, there's a parking lot in Halifax. There's like an, an outdoor concrete multi-level parking lot. And uh, that was close by the studio where we were recording. And in the dead of winter, this kind of north wind would come through this parking lot. And for some reason, just the structure of it, it would cause those, it would cause the pillars of this parking lot to resonate in this really, like, surprisingly sonic kind of way, like these big kind of booming tones, which matched tonally and sonically a lot of the the sounds that Lucas was making because uh, he used to play his bass sometimes with a steak knife to make these big oh, wow. drony kinds of sweeping drony kinds of noises. And so that's all over the record. But yeah, we made that record in no amount of time with no money and it was engineered and, and co-produced by Ian Blurton from change of heart. Mm-hmm. And that's a guy that I've always uh, had so much admiration for. Mm-hmm. And um, I think his favorite song was state of grace and he actually ended up writing on the next Change of Heart record, there's a response song to that huh. song. <laughs> oh, wow. Remember him telling me about it, yeah. Interesting. We would often play that song at the end of a set because it has that, it's kind of soothing, like it's a mm, good way to say right. goodnight to people because it, it is true. both soothing and hopeful. And, and it sort of hits a tone that you'd like people to, I always would like, I'd like people to take that home with them. Like, you know, like I was in pain and now I feel a little bit better. Mm. <laughs> Never mind that I'm the person that caused the pain, you know, in whatever super aggressive ear splitting thing I'd played before that. But, but I wanted people to be able to walk away feeling, feeling okay. And um, my strategy with that song, well, as a performer, lots of us do this is you just find that one person in the audience and you sing it to them or talk it to them. Um, Speaking of more aggressive tunes that would have been in the set list at that point, uh, another track that I really dig off that, um, EP, I guess, is a mystery bird, which is pretty aggressive. Mm-hmm. Can you maybe um, yes, it is. talk to a little bit about that track and any kind of background into that tune? Because that's it's a great song. Thank you. That song came about, it's probably the one song on the record that's not actually about me and what I was feeling. Hmm. It was more about, <laughs> it was about, um, there was this, I, I can't remember her name, thank goodness, but there was this gal who used to come to our shows, this young woman, and she had a thing for one of the other musicians, I won't say which one. <laughs> um, she had a thing and she was a kind of a troubled, she was a troubled person. Mm. And so it's really kind of a song about her. Like she, she was kind of a, she was kind of a weird, she was a weird stalker kind of person. And that, mm. so the lyrics of that song are me trying to put myself in her shoes. Like what, what is, what is causing her to behave in this way where mm. she is, probably has a borderline personality disorder and all she really wants is to be loved. But the very moment that she gets it, she destroys it. Wow. So that's, for me, that's what that, the mystery bird is, you know, what is that mystery bird who's telling you like a, like a little bird on your shoulder hmm. that's telling you, fuck it up, fuck it up. Right. Fascinating. <laughs> and, then, and then she would. Huh. Yeah. And the, and the chorus is what, hate me, it's okay. Is, is that the lyric? Yep. She was, she had this self-destructive, thing hmm. i wow. think that she might have also i think she was also a cutter now that oh, i think wow. about Jeez. it yeah i remember having a having a really heavy conversation with her hmm. um i mean it's a terrible thing you know i i have a lot of um because i'm older now and i'm not as big as uh, you know i'm not as um well maybe not quite as judgmental as i used to be <laughs> <laughs> but um 
because I used to be really critical of the behavior of young women, you know, mm-hmm. who would like follow guys around who right. were in bands and, and, and make fools of themselves. And I always really, I thought, oh, that's terrible behavior. And I blamed it on them. You know, I thought, mm-hmm. God, have some self-respect. And I've long since learned to understand that we're, you know, partly we're socialized that way. You know, mm-hmm. we don't have any, we don't know how to have self-respect because society doesn't give us respect. So how are you going to have self-respect in the face of a world that never gives you any respect at all? Hmm. And, um, you know, now when I think about that young woman, I, I feel I wish that I had been kinder to her. But instead, what I thought about was I just tried to put myself in like, what's her inner monologue about? Right. Yeah. Anyway, that's what that song's about. Little anxious bird trembles in the rib.
So why was that the last kind of recording material for Rebecca West? What kind of led to um, you guys walking away from each other? Well, we did after that. We did. We we recorded one more set of songs, um, mm. but they were never they were never released okay. until I put out this thing in 2015, which is sort of a compilation. So, yeah. So about a year after we did uh, after we did six more weeks of winter. Uh, we did go into the studio again uh, with the producer, Lawrence Curry, mm. and recorded, I don't know, it was like five, six songs. And those are the ones that like, so the only really um, easily available Rebecca West material on the streaming services is this record called Remains of the Day, which mm. is essentially a compilation that I curated of all of the stuff that we ever recorded. And the last uh, four tracks of that are from these sessions with oh, Lawrence Curry. Interesting. And uh, I think they sound sounds really, really good. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> they sound really good. And I don't know, we just, we kind of ran out of steam, I think was part of it. And, mm. um, you know, you have to, you got a picture like, at that point, I'd gone to law school. I finished law school in the, in 94 and had decided not to practice law. So, you know, I, I went out, did a, did a bunch of tours with Dubai Skull and then was really focused on Rebecca West. And in the meanwhile, was also carrying some student loan. And, you know, my son was growing up and he was, you know, starting to reach his, his difficult teenage years. Mm-hmm. And, it, and I was tired and it was exhausting. And, you know, I think at that point, a lot of bands in Halifax had gotten record deals. We didn't. We did get a publishing deal, thank God, like shout out Warner Chapel <laughs> and Anne-Marie, Anne-Marie Smith, who, who parachuted in out of nowhere and gave <laughs> us a publishing deal, which kept us going for a little while. Like we were able to pay some debts and and finally pay Angie Fenwick, who was our manager, who'd never gotten a nickel out of us, wow. you know, after four four years of work or whatever. Thank God for that. But I think Lucas was also, he was kind of worn out and mm-hmm. he wanted to go and do something with his life. So so he left the band and went to Korea to teach English for a while. And we got a we got a substitute bass player and, you know, t- tried to sort of keep going, but it was just not the same. Mm-hmm. It wasn't right. the same. And so we just, we just kind of lapsed into uh, whatever. And we never did put out those last tracks, but um, uh, they're really good. I'm sorry yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great compilation. I've been, I was listening to it incessantly mm-hmm. all week long in preparation for this uh, interview. Oh, so, nice. so good. Mm-hmm. But um, were you close to ever kind of getting that record deal with Rebecca West? I mean, you said you kind of had a different attitude when you were Boo by Skull, and then you had some kind of weird record label people asking you to like go solo. I guess. I mean, was it ever close for you guys to kind of take it to the next level? I don't think so. No. I don't think so. No. And, and when I say that, what I mean is. You know, there there was a lot of interest in Halifax bands, mm-hmm. um, mostly from sub pop, but they had a very specific, they had a, they were a very specific genre that they were interested in. Mm. Like they they really were into that kind of grungy grunge thing, uh, which is great. Like I'm not I'm not going to diss sub pop or any of the bands that were signed to it, but that was a very specific kind of sound. Mm-hmm. Rebecca West was not in that category. We just weren't and. Uh, you, you know, the at that time, the independent music industry in Toronto, you know, there were there were a few labels that were also kind of keen on that on that grungy kind of sound, like Sonic Onion or whatever. Like they were kind of keen on that mm-hmm. sound. And then there was Mint Records, Mint Records that had a very specific idea of what 
of the bands that they wanted to work with. I just think we didn't really fit in there anywhere. And we, we were also weren't a major label band. So I think maybe it's an accident of timing or something that it just, we just never, it just wasn't, we never had that opportunity. And, uh, you know, it's funny. I, I have, uh, I don't know if you know that I'm, I'm married to James Keast. No, I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> so James was uh, for your audience's, listening pleasure james was the uh founding editor and many for many many years the manager or the editor-in-chief of explain magazine mm -hmm. and he and i met in about 1995 or so one of the first times that rebecca west came to toronto to play a show we were both there used to be a venue called the ultrasound it was booked right. by by uh yvonne uh booked us in there mm -hmm. and so james and i met and actually at that time he uh, wrote a story about us for Chart Magazine. But anyway, eventually we wound up on the cover of Exclaim. I think it was in June 96. Hmm. And he and I over the years have talked a lot about this. He was a big fan of our band and um, continues to be a fan of me, which I really appreciate. <laughs> that's that's <even>. good. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I think he, he might he might agree with me when I say that I, I think that we just occupied a space that was really difficult to put handles on. Hmm. Like we weren't an all-girl band. Right. We weren't really a rock band. We weren't really a pop band. We were trying to do things that were a little bit experimental, but not in a hippy-dippy way and not in a really arty kind of way. I mean, when I think about, when I think about artists that that I think are most like where my headspace was at that time, it would be like, uh, what's her name? <laughs> St. Vincent. Thank you. Jesus Christ. I, I don't know why I had to sneak up on that. I was listening to her just yesterday. I think that there's a lot more space now for artists like who are, who are not necessarily, you know, it's not dude rock. Mm -hmm. It's not pop. It's not folk. It's not jazz. It's little pieces of all of those things and so an artist like like saint vincent i think is kind of more in the pocket or or even like mitski you know like or even i don't know there's i think there's a little bit more room for artists like that now than there was you know sharon van etten that's another an, another artist that i really connect with in terms of you know what she has to say and how she wants to say it you know who's definitely a woman uh but who isn't like there's not any sort of pandering to what that means as far as your, your sex or your sexuality. There's no denial of it. And there's no necessarily, it doesn't have to be affirmed every 10 minutes either. You know, it's just sort of this neutral, like I'm just a songwriter. I'm just a guitar player. And I want to, I want to be able to play around with, with all of it. Um, I think it was a lot harder than, than it is now. As we start to kind of wind this down though, there's one track that's uh, actually, I didn't talk about any songs off uh, burners on that's um the mm -hmm. first Rebecca West record, and there's a track off there called mm -hmm. um, Sick that I'm a really big fan of mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. that I like to play in the podcast. Is there anything you can kind of say to kind of set that song up? I had a crush on somebody. You know, this isn't like a direct, It's I didn't like sort of directly extrapolate to this song, but it, it's me thinking about what it feels like when you've got, you really want, you want somebody's attention and they don't give it to you and the lengths that you'll sort of go to uh, to try to that are that are really um, self-abasing. Mm. Uh, I was trying to put myself in that headspace of like, what is that? You know, what where's that coming from? Where you're like, you know that you're behaving badly and that you are betraying your self-respect 
by behaving in this way. Mm. But you do it anyway because you can't stop yourself. That's what that song is about.
any kind of final thoughts before we kind of talk about what you're up to more currently? Um, any kind of final thoughts on the 90s in Canada in general or maybe your experience within them? Anything that didn't come up today in our conversation? It was a hell of a decade. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, I think for for me it ended probably at the right moment. And I think it's it's interesting that, you know, the last couple of years of the 90s, were not very remarkable for Canadian rock bands. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there that was there, like a little bit of a void sort of happens there, and and um, doesn't really pick up again until the very early 2000s when you when you then have and I mean Halifax went through it as well where you know there was this big explosion of stuff in the early mid 90s and then everything sort of dissipates mm-hmm. and and then there's a bit of a lull. And then, you know, Halifax came on strong again, especially with uh, uh, singer-songwriters and especially women. And then, uh, you know, the the whole rock band thing in Canada generally kind of takes a beating until the early, early, early aughts with like Three Got Records and, you know, the Constantines and the Weaker Thans and sort of picks up again after that. Yeah, so I, I feel like I was, I feel like I was, you know, the peak of my rock Rock music re <laughs> was kind of the, the, the was kind of really the, it was a time it was a time capsule you know there's a lot mm-hmm. going on and then everything changed and you know for the benefit of your listeners I think that's the important to remember is that you know in the 90s especially the early 90s like there were no friggin booking agents like <laughs> who had a booking agent nobody nobody I know had a booking agent <laughs> like. If you if you managed to book a tour, you did it. You cobbled it together, you know, and by bit by bit. And there wasn't any money for that kind of stuff. So, like all of those times that you that you, that we went out, like we God knows we didn't know where we were going to sleep. Like we wow, didn't yeah. would often be playing for like a cut of the door in Thunder Bay for God's sake. Which by <laughs> the way is zero. <laughs> That's the cut. <laughs> Doesn't matter how you slice it, it's fucking zero every time. Uh, it was hard. It was really, really hard, you know. So when bands, kids today, when they talk about how hard it is, <laughs> I'm laughing because it's always hard. You know, the music business is a terrible place for everybody. It always has been, but uh, it was tough then, and it's tough now. <laughs> uh, well said. One thing we didn't touch on, though, was you founded the Alliance for Equity in the Music Industry. Um, did you want to talk a little bit about that? Right. So it's not specifically directed towards women, um, but uh, but really more towards the idea of equity um, in governance and policy in the music industry. And my particular interest was around trying to uh, find ways to to make space for um, racialized artists and, and other members of marginalized communities, which. Um, so and, and obviously equity is for everyone. And that includes uh, that includes women. But. It was it's sort of most acutely pointed at making space for black and indigenous artists mm. and other artists of color and artists with disabilities and so on. Yeah. What's your kind of role as a performance songwriter yourself? Do you do it for fun on the side? Do you do any kind of coffee house stuff or any kind of full band stuff or <laughs> No, I um so I'm sort of doing some independent consulting um okay. around uh working with independent artists and also around the equity piece as well. Because I'm now um, sort of focused on that. But, um, you know, I haven't played live in a very long time. Uh, the last time I played a gig was a reunion gig that I did with Rebecca West in 2015 at the Pop Explosion in nice. Halifax. And that was a total scream. <laughs> oh, my God, it was so good. So great. Um, awesome. 
When I moved to Toronto in, I moved to Toronto in 2006, sorry, 2005. And about a year or so later, I started uh, making a record um, with Don Kerr, mm. the, uh, well, everybody knows who he is, drummer and producer, engineer, and spectacularly nice human. <laughs> and I, I have, so I've got like three quarters of an album in the can nice. <laughs> from like 2008. Oh, wow, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> and then... <laughs> And then never, never really got around to putting it out. To be oh, honest, no. like I, I just when I went to work in the music business, like I don't know, it kind of it kind of drained the um, energy out of me for actually playing music oh, on, really? on any kind of full time on any kind of full time basis. So I, I don't really anymore. Uh, I have all the gear in my house, and about every couple of months, I go, you know, I should do a thing, and then I, I don't get around to doing it. But um, <laughs> maybe I will. Well, we're all hoping you definitely do at some point because uh, <laughs> we love your voice and your songwriting. It's, it's phenomenal and should uh, should be more material out there that you <laughs> for the people, I think. I'm speaking personally, Thank but you. I'm sure I'm not the only one. But Thank uh, you. Uh, final question. Now, um, I have a playlist on Spotify and Apple of all quote-unquote 90s can rock, and I'm asking all the guests mm-hmm. to contribute um, three songs to the playlist. So how would you like, um, I know Boobai Skull is not on streaming, so how would you like Rebecca West's material to kind of be represented on the playlist? Okay. Uh, well, if I had to pick, there's two ways I can go with this, Tyler, and I'll let you be the judge. <laughs> we, can, I, we can either pick the ones that I think had the most traction as far as, you know, popular-ishness. Or we can pick the ones that I just like. Well, how about this? We pick two of the <laughs> ones that had uh, traction, as you said, that are more well-known and more kind of, uh, okay. and then one kind of deep cut. Well, all right. So uh, then let's say um, there's a song called Sick. Mm. Uh, which, well, we talked about it, Sick, um, which was on Burners On. And I'm picking that one because it was also, it came out as a single on Cinnamon Toast Records mm. um, before the album came out. Nice. And so there's two different versions of it out there, but this is the album version. And um, it's a good song. Uh, Great. Well constructed, I think, although maybe it's a bit long. And let's also go with State of Grace, the spoken word song mm-hmm. that we talked about, because it's just a beautiful vibe. Mm-hmm. And then I think... We could end with happy now, which is, which asks the question, are you happy now? Um, <laughs> yeah. But instead, let's end with Final Diary, um, ah. because uh, it's a short, snappy tune in which uh, I, it's my, it's my kind of comment on the music business, which is you don't get 15 minutes, you get <laughs> three and a half, and that's uh-huh. all. Nice. And uh, I did that in two minutes. Yeah. And 22 seconds. <laughs> Beautiful. That's why you're a genius, man. That's, you work quick. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, uh, I was definitely uh, slightly intimidated because I know you are a million times smarter than I am, but um, this was fun. <laughs> so, uh, I appreciate you being cool. <laughs> but, uh, oh, no worries. But thank you so much for uh, taking the time to discuss your experience in the 90s. It's been fantastic. Oh, thank you, Tyler. Thanks for having me. And um, yeah, enjoy editing my ramblings. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today on Raven Drool. If you're interested in supporting the podcast, you can do so in a variety of ways. First, you can go to patreon.com slash ravedrool, become a patron, get access to deleted audio, get advanced notes of the guests, and get a chance to submit questions to those guests for an exclusive Patreon Q&A. Visit redbubble.com, search Rave Drool, and you can buy various goods with the Raven Drool podcast logo on it. Follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to this. 
And if you listen to this on Apple Podcasts, please give us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more 90s Can Rock content, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. And lastly, if you're looking for music, we have an official playlist on Apple and Spotify. Currently, it's curated by myself with tracks that I've selected, but as you heard during today's episode, eventually, it'll be curated by the guests themselves. Until next time, friends, take care.